Chapter Two, Part Three of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Camel. By half past six, we were under way, and all the Syrian world seemed to be under way also. The road was filled with mule trains and long processions of camels. This reminds me that we have been trying for some time to think what a camel looks like, and now we have made it out. When he is down on all his knees, flat on his breast to receive his load, he looks something like a goose, swimming. And when he is upright, he looks like an ostrich, with an extra set of legs. Camels are not beautiful and their long underlip gives them an exceedingly gallous expression. They have immense flat, forked cushions of feet, that make a track in the dust like a pie with a slice cut out of it. They are not particular about their diet. They would eat a tombstone if they could bite it. A thistle grows about here, which has needles on it that would pierce through leather, I think, if one touches you, you can find relief in nothing but profanity. The camels eat these. They show by their actions that they enjoy them. I suppose it would be a real treat to a camel to have a keg of nails for supper. At Noah's Tomb Noah's tomb is built of stone, and is covered with a long stone building. Bucksheesh let us in. The building had to be long, because the grave of the honoured old navigator is two hundred and ten feet long itself. It is only about four feet high, though. He must have cast a shadow like a lightning rod. The proof that this is the genuine spot where Noah was buried can only be doubted by uncommonly incredulous people. The evidence is pretty straight. Shem, the son of Noah, was present at the burial and showed the place to his descendants, who transmitted the knowledge to their descendants, and the lineal descendants of these introduced themselves to us to-day. It was pleasant to make the acquaintance of members of so respectable a family. It was a thing to be proud of. It was the next thing to being acquainted with Noah himself. Damascus Damascus dates back anterior to the days of Abraham, and is the oldest city in the world. It was founded by Uz, the grandson of Noah. The early history of Damascus is shrouded in the mists of a hoary antiquity. Leave the matters written of in the first eleven chapters of the Old Testament out, and no recorded event has occurred in the world, but Damascus was in existence to receive the news of it. Go back as far as you will into the vague past. There was always a Damascus. In the writings of every century for more than four thousand years, its name has been mentioned, and its praises sung. To Damascus, years are only moments, decades are only fitting trifles of time. She measures time, not by days and months and years, but by the empires she has seen rise and prosper, and crumble to ruin. She is a type of immortality. She saw the foundations of Baalbek, and Thebes, and Ephesus laid. She saw these villages grow into mighty cities, and amaze the world with their grandeur, and she has lived to see them desolate, deserted, and given over to the owls and the bats. She saw the Israelitish empire exalted, and she saw it annihilated. 
she saw greece rise and flourish two thousand years and die in her old age she saw rome built she saw it overshadow the world with its power she saw it perish the few hundreds of years of genoese and venetian might and splendor were to grave old damascus only a trifling scintillation hardly worth mentioning damascus has seen all that has ever occurred on earth and still she lives she has looked upon the dry bones of a thousand empires and will see the tombs of a thousand more before she dies though another claims the name old damascus is by right the eternal city at banyas it seems curious enough to us to be standing on ground that was once actually pressed by the feet of the saviour the situation is suggestive of a reality and a tangibility that seem at variance with the vagueness and mystery and ghostliness that one naturally attaches to the character of a god i cannot comprehend yet that i am sitting where a god has stood and looking upon the brook and the mountains which that god looked upon and am surrounded by dusky men and women whose ancestors saw him and even talked with him face to face and carelessly just as they would have done with any other stranger i cannot comprehend this the gods of my understanding have been always hidden in clouds and very far away a healer in palestine as soon as the tribe found out that we had a doctor in our party they began to flock in from all quarters dr b in the charity of his nature had taken a child from a wagon who sat nearby and put some sort of a wash upon its diseased eyes that woman went off and started the whole nation and it was a sight to see them swarm the lame the halt the blind the leprous all the distempers that are bred of indolence dirt and iniquity were represented in the congress in ten minutes and still they came every woman that had a sick baby brought it along and every woman that hadn't borrowed one what reverent and what worshipping looks they bent upon that dread mysterious power the doctor they watched him take his files out they watched him measure the particles of white powder they watched him add drops of one precious liquid and drops of another they lost not the slightest movement their eyes were riveted upon him with a fascination that nothing could distract i believe they thought he was gifted like a god when each individual got his portion of medicine his eyes were radiant with joy notwithstanding by nature they are a thankless and impassive race and upon his face was written the unquestioning faith that nothing on earth could prevent the patient from getting well now christ knew how to preach to these simple superstitious disease-tortured creatures he healed the sick they flocked to our poor human doctor this morning when the fame of what he had done to the sick child went abroad in the land and they worshipped him with their eyes while they did not know as yet whether there was virtue in his simples or not the ancestors of these people precisely like them in colour dress manners costumes simplicity flocked in vast multitudes after christ and when they saw him make the afflicted whole with a word 
It is no wonder they worshipped him. No wonder his deeds were the talk of the nation. No wonder the multitude that followed him was so great that at one time, thirty miles from here, they had to let a sick man down through the roof, because no approach could be made to the door. No wonder his audiences were so great at Galilee that he had to preach from a ship removed a little distance from the shore. No wonder that even in the desert places about Bethsaida, five thousand invaded his solitude, and he had to feed them by a miracle, or else see them suffer for their confiding faith and devotion. No wonder, when there was a great commotion in a city in those days, one neighbor explained it to another in words to this effect. They say that Jesus of Nazareth is come. THE BIBLE it is hard to make a choice of the most beautiful passage in a book which is so gemmed with beautiful passages as the bible but it is certain that not many things within its lids may take rank above the exquisite story of joseph who taught those ancient writers their simplicity of language their felicity of expression their pathos and above all their faculty of sinking themselves entirely out of sight of the reader and making the narrative stand out alone and seem to tell itself. Shakespeare is always present when one reads his book. Macaulay is present when we follow the march of his stately sentences. But the Old Testament writers are hidden from view. Galilee at Night In the starlight, Galilee has no boundaries but the broad compass of the heavens, and is a theatre meet for great events, meet for the birth of a religion able to save a world, and meet for the stately figure appointed to stand upon its stage, and proclaim its high degrees. But in the sunlight one says, Is it for the deeds which were done, and the words which were spoken, in this little acre of rocks and sand, eighteen centuries gone, that the bells are ringing to-day in the remote islands of the sea and far and wide over continents that clasp the circumference of the huge globe. DISTANCE IN THE EAST In Constantinople you ask, How far is it to the consulate? And they answer, About ten minutes. How far is it to the Lloyd's Agency? Quarter of an hour. How far is it to the lower bridge? Four minutes. I cannot be positive about it, but I think that there, when a man orders a pair of pantaloons, he says he wants them a quarter of a minute in the legs and nine seconds around the waist. A PLEASANT INCIDENT I cannot think of anything now more certain to make one shudder than to have a soft-footed camel sneak up behind him and touch him on the ear with its cold, flabby underlip. A camel did this for one of the boys, who was drooping over his saddle in a brown study. He glanced up and saw the majestic apparition hovering above him, and made frantic efforts to get out of the way. But the camel reached out and bit him on the shoulder before he accomplished it. This was the only pleasant incident of the journey. SACRED MARVELS Imagination labors best in distant fields. I doubt if any man can stand in the grotto of the Annunciation and people with the phantom images of his mind its two tangible walls of stone. 
they showed us a broken granite pillar descending from the roof which they said was hacked in two by the moslem conquerors of nazareth in the vain hope of pulling down the sanctuary but the pillar remained miraculously suspended in the air and unsupported itself supported then and still supports the roof by dividing this statement up among eight it was found not difficult to believe it these gifted latin monks never do anything by halves if they were to show you the brazen serpent that was elevated in the wilderness you could depend upon it that they had on hand the pole it was elevated on also and even the hole it stood in they have got the grotto of the annunciation here and just as convenient to it as one's throat is to his mouth they have also the virgin's kitchen and even her sitting-room where she and joseph watched the infant saviour play with hebrew toys eighteen hundred years ago all under one roof and all clean spacious comfortable grottoes it seems curious that personages intimately connected with the holy family always lived in grottoes in nazareth in bethlehem in imperial ephesus and yet nobody else in their day and generation thought of doing anything of the kind if they ever did their grottoes are all gone and i suppose we ought to wonder at the peculiar marvel of the preservation of these i speak of when the virgin fled from herod's wrath she hid in a grotto in bethlehem and the same is there to this day the slaughter of the innocents in bethlehem was done in a grotto the saviour was born in a grotto both are shown to pilgrims yet it is exceedingly strange that these tremendous events all happened in grottoes and exceedingly fortunate likewise because the strongest houses must crumble to ruin in time but a grotto in the living rock will last forever. At Adam's Grave The tomb of Adam! How touching it was, here in a land of strangers, far away from home and friends, and all who cared for me, thus to discover the grave of a blood relation. True, a distant one, but still a relation. The unerring instinct of nature thrilled its recognition the fountain of my filial affection was stirred to its profoundest depths and i gave way to a tumultuous emotion i leaned upon a pillar and burst into tears i deem it no shame to have wept over the grave of my poor dead relative let him who would sneer at my emotion close this volume here for he will find little to his taste in my journeyings through the holy land noble old man he did not live to see me he did not live to see his child and i i alas i did not live to see him weighed down by sorrow and disappointment he died before i was born six thousand brief summers before i was born but let us try to bear it with fortitude let us trust that he is better off where he is let us take comfort in the thought that his loss is our eternal gain. THE WANDERING JEW And so we came at last to another wonder, of deep and abiding interest, the veritable house where the unhappy wretch once lived, who has been celebrated in song and story for more than eighteen hundred years as the Wandering Jew.
on the memorable day of the crucifixion he stood in this old doorway with his arms akimbo looking out upon the struggling mob that was approaching and when the weary saviour would have sat down and rested him a moment pushed him rudely away and said move on the lord said move on thou likewise and the command has never been revoked from that day to this all men know now that the miscreant upon whose head that just curse fell has roamed up and down the wide world for ages and ages seeking rest and never finding it courting death but always in vain longing to stop in city in wilderness in desert solitudes yet hearing always that relentless warning to march march on they say do these hoary traditions that when titus sacked jerusalem and slaughtered eleven hundred thousand jews in her streets and byways the wandering jew was seen always in the thickest of the fight and that when battle-axes gleamed in the air he bowed his head beneath them when swords flashed their deadly lightnings he sprang in their way he bared his breast to whizzing javelins to hissing arrows to any and to every weapon that promised death and forgetfulness and rest but it was useless he walked forth out of the carnage without a wound and it is said that five hundred years afterwards he followed mahomet when he carried destruction to the cities of arabia and then turned against him hoping in this way to win the death of a traitor his calculations were wrong again no quarter was given to any living creature but one and that was the only one of all the host that did not want it he sought death five hundred years later in the wars of the crusades and offered himself to famine and pestilence at ascalon he escaped again he could not die these repeated annoyances could have at last but one effect they shook his confidence since then the wandering jew has carried on a kind of desultory toying with the most promising of the aids and implements of destruction but with small hope as a general thing he has speculated some in cholera and railroads and has taken almost a lively interest in infernal machines and patent medicines he is old now and grave as becomes an age like his he indulges in no light amusements save that he goes sometimes to executions and is fond of funerals bedouins we had had a glimpse from a mountain-top of the dead sea lying like a blue shield in the plain of the jordan and now we were marching down a close flaming rugged desolate defile where no living creature could enjoy life except perhaps a salamander it was such a dreary repulsive horrible solitude it was the wilderness where john preached with camel's hair about his loins raiment enough but he never could have got his locusts and wild honey here we were moping along down this dreadful place every man in the rear our guards two gorgeous young arab sheiks with cargoes of swords guns pistols and daggers on board were loafing ahead bedouins every man shrunk up and disappeared in his clothes like a mud turtle my first impulse was to dash forward and destroy the bedouins 
my second was to dash to the rear to see if there were any coming in that direction i acted on the latter impulse so did all the others if any bedouins had approached us then from that point of compass they would have paid dearly for their rashness we all remarked that afterwards there would have been scenes of riot and bloodshed there that no pen could describe i know that because each man told what he would have done individually and such a medley of strange and unheard of inventions of cruelty you could not conceive of one man said he had calmly made up his mind to perish where he stood if need be but never yield an inch he was going to wait with deadly patience till he could count the stripes on the first bedouin's jacket and then count them and let him have it another was going to sit still till the first lance reached within an inch of his breast and then dodge it and seize it i forbear to tell what he was going to do to that bedouin that owned it it makes my blood run cold to think of it a smitten land palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies where sodom and gomorrah reared their domes and towers that solemn sea now floods the plain in whose bitter waters no living thing exists over whose waveless surface the blistering air hangs motionless and dead about whose borders nothing grows but weeds and scattering tufts of cane and that treacherous fruit that promises refreshment to parching lips but turns to ashes at the touch nazareth is forlorn about that ford of jordan where the hosts of israel entered the promised land with songs of rejoicing one finds only a squalid camp of fantastic bedouins of the desert jericho the accursed lies a mouldering ruin to-day even as joshua's miracle left it more than three thousand years ago bethlehem and bethany in their poverty and their humiliation have nothing about them now to remind one that they once knew the high honour of the saviour's presence the hallowed spot where the shepherds watched their flocks by night and where the angels sang peace on earth good will to men is untenanted by any living creature and unblessed by any feature that is pleasant to the eye renowned jerusalem itself the stateliest name in history has lost all its ancient grandeur and is become a pauper village the riches of solomon are no longer there to compel the admiration of visiting oriental queens the wonderful temple which was the pride and glory of israel is gone and the ottoman crescent is lifted above the spot where on that most memorable day in the annals of the world they reared the holy cross the noted sea of galilee where roman fleets once rode at anchor and the disciples of the saviour sailed in their ships was long ago deserted by the devotees of war and commerce and its borders are a silent wilderness capernaum is a shapeless ruin magdala is the home of beggared arabs bethsaida and chorazin have vanished from the earth and the desert places round about them where thousands of men once listened to the saviour's voice and ate the miraculous bread sleep in the hush of a solitude that is inhabited only by birds of prey and skulking foxes 
Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? THE SPHINX After years of waiting, it was before me at last. The great face was so sad, so earnest, so longing, so patient. There was a dignity not of earth in its mien, and in its countenance a benignity such as never anything human wore. It was stone, but seemed sentient. If ever image of stone thought, it was thinking. It was looking toward the verge of the landscape, yet looking at nothing, nothing but distance and vacancy. It was looking over and beyond everything of the present, and far into the past. It was gazing out over the ocean of time, over lines of century waves which, further and further receding, closed nearer and nearer together, and blended at last into one unbroken tide, away toward the horizon of remote antiquity. It was thinking of the wars of departed ages, of the empires it had seen created and destroyed, of the nations whose birth it had witnessed, whose progress it had watched, whose annihilation it had noted, of the joy and sorrow, the life and death, the grandeur and decay of five thousand slow revolving years. It was the type of an attribute of man, of a faculty of his heart and brain. It was memory, retrospection, wrought into visible, tangible form. All who know what pathos there is in memories of days that are accomplished and faces that have vanished, albeit only a trifling score of years gone by, will have some appreciation of the pathos that dwells in these grave eyes that look so steadfastly back upon the things they knew before history was born, before tradition had being, things that were, and forms that moved, in a vague era which even poetry and romance scarce know of, and passed one by one away and left the stony dreamer solitary in the midst of a strange new age and uncomprehended scenes. The Sphinx is grand in its loneliness, it is imposing in its magnitude, it is impressive in the mystery that hangs over its story, and there is that in the overshadowing majesty of this eternal figure of stone, with its accusing memory of the deeds of all ages, which reveals to one something of what he shall feel when he shall stand at last in the awful presence of God. MEMORIES OF THE PILGRIMAGE We shall remember something of pleasant France, and something also of Paris, though it flashed upon us a splendid meteor and was gone again, we hardly knew how or where. We shall remember always how we saw majestic Gibraltar glorified with the rich colouring of a Spanish sunset, and swimming in a sea of rainbows. In fancy we shall see Milan again, and her stately cathedral with its marble wilderness of graceful spires, and Padua, Verona, Como, jewelled with stars, and patrician Venice afloat on her stagnant flood, silent, desolate, haughty, scornful of her humbled state, wrapping herself in memories of her lost fleets, of battle and triumph, and all the pageantry of a glory that is departed. We cannot forget Florence, Naples, 
nor the foretaste of heaven that is in the delicious atmosphere of greece and surely not athens and the broken temples of the acropolis surely not venerable rome nor the green plain that compasses her roundabout contrasting its brightness with her grey decay nor the ruined arches that stand apart in the plain and clothe their looped and windowed raggedness with vines we shall remember st peter's not as one sees it when he walks the streets of rome and fancies all her domes are just alike but as he sees it leagues away when every meaner edifice has faded out of sight and that one dome looms superbly up in the flush of sunset full of dignity and grace strongly outlined as a mountain we shall remember constantinople and the bosporus the colossal magnificence of baalbek the pyramids of egypt the prodigious form the benignant countenance of the sphinx oriental smyrna sacred jerusalem damascus the pearl of the east the pride of syria the fabled garden of eden the home of princes and genii of the arabian nights the oldest metropolis on the earth the one city in all the world that has kept its name and held its place and looked serenely on while the kingdoms and empires of four thousand years have risen to life enjoyed their little season of pride and pomp and then vanished and been forgotten end of chapter two part three from the innocents abroad